Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescents, ours and theirs. Zoe Bisbing, we are so happy to have you back. You're like an SNL guest who gets to come back because we love you so much on the Puberty Podcast. Listeners may know Zoe from her previous episode, All About Body Image, and you may know her from the Full Bloom Project, which has now morphed in our post-pandemic reinvention. We are all reinventing ourselves as my body positive home, and we will link to her amazing Instagram account in the show notes. And Zoe is our trusted go-to advisor and resource on all things body positivity. She is quoted in our book, which will come out October, 2023. So we're so happy to have you here, Zoe. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. I really like hanging out with you guys, just like <laughs> as my mom friends that I don't have time to see any of them. So this is fantastic. <laughs> and we're not nursing while we're talking, which makes it even better than a, <laughs> than a mom's group. Exactly. Okay. Am I allowed to just go? Go, Cara. Run with because it. Because right before we pressed record, I was going and Vanessa and Zoe very sweetly silenced me and said, zip it and save it for when we press record. So now can I go? Yes, I go. go for it. Okay. Here's what I was saying. I was saying, Zoe, 
one of the many, many reasons that we wanted to have you back is that there is this new set of clinical practice guidelines that were released by the American Academy of Pediatrics about how to evaluate and treat kids, so children, tweens, and teens, with obesity. And one of the most incredible things about these guidelines is that they were somewhat quietly released the first week of January. January 9th is when the article is dated. It's now the first week of February when we're recording this. And unlike most American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, which might get some attention the week they're released and then the attention dies off, or they might get no attention at all, like seatbelts, this one is picking up steam as time has gone on. So two weeks ago, NPR did a big story. Last week, it was the New York Times. This morning, my email inbox, here's Emily Oster, who I love, going through the data of the recommendations. Everywhere I turn four weeks later, there's more and more and more conversation. And I think it's because, and here's where I'd like you to pick up the conversation. I think it's because these guidelines are hitting a major nerve. So will you talk to us about what they are, what they say, and why you think we're seeing what we're seeing in terms of social reaction? Yes, I will try. I I will say that over the past several weeks, I have also been trying to make sense of, it's going to sound weird, but like my role in all of it, because they are, depending on your orientation, and we'll talk about that, they are enraging, depending on a variety of things. They're scary. They're confusing. Like there's, there's, you know, those are just a few feelings that have few people that I know are having. But when I say I want to be mindful of like my role in all of it, I am a therapist and I'm a mom, right? Like I'm a content creator, I guess, as you guys are as well, but I'm not an expert when it comes to like methodology. I'm not a researcher, you know, like I I'm trying to be mindful. And then I want to be honest about who I'm looking to right now to help me make sense of all of it, right? Because we're all going to have our respective places that we go, right? Whether it's Emily Ostar or um, the New York Times, they did a daily piece on it that I had a lot of strong feelings about. So I'm wondering if in talking about what they are, Cara, you and I could maybe talk together about what they are, because I'm sure you have read them and you know what they are. And as a pediatrician, you might even be able to explain what the AAP is saying. And I can certainly start us off by saying that they are offering the first comprehensive guidelines for evaluating and treating children and adolescents with what they call is obesity. And I think already in the basic description of what this is, we're we're in a values conflict right out of the gate. So I'm I'm wondering if you, Carl, want to add anything to, to what they are more specifically. And can I make a request as the peanut gallery on today's episode? I really want us to define the terms that we're using and explain to our listeners why those terms are complex and problematic for some and imperfect for others. Because I think 
with so much else, we throw language around in our daily lives without really understanding the repercussions or the meaning behind it. So if possible, at some point, I would love for each of you to offer your definition of obesity, for instance, and it doesn't have to be now because I want Car to be able to pipe up. Is that a right? Is that right? Pipe up, pipe in? Contribute. Oh, contribute. I, have, I have no problem piping up. But I do want to get at that very, very important crux of the definition of obesity and whether that's a good word or not a good word or however we want to explore that. I think that is the conversation, I mean, in many ways. And before we get there, though, Cara, like beyond what I said, right, that this is these sort of first comprehensive guidelines, you know, centering the treatment of obesity in children and adolescents. What else would you add to sort of orient listeners to what the AAP is and what they released and and why? That's a great way of framing this conversation. So thank you for asking the question. I really appreciate it. I feel like we've just flipped seats and I'm having a lot of fun. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is the national group that represents board-certified pediatricians. And if you are a board-certified pediatrician, you are invited to join, but you don't have to join. And it is both a children's advocacy organization, which writes to that end, it writes guidelines to advocate for the health and safety of children, tweens, and teens. And it is also essentially, or maybe, I don't know, technically or not, but it's a lobbying organization, right? The AAP goes to both state and the federal legislature and says, pass this law to protect these kids. So a good example would be, I live in California, as most of our listeners know, and there have been a number of laws passed around gun control, around vaccination requirements, all framed through the lens of the health and safety of kids And the AAP has played sometimes a more central role and sometimes a more peripheral role in helping to advocate for those laws in the name of protecting kids. Or, you know, if you dial way back, you can look at baby car seat rules and seat belt rules. And many of those have been shaped by recommendations that were written by committees formed under the umbrella banner of the AAP. And then legislation has been written to reflect those guidelines. So I think that's an important framing for this conversation because it helps you to understand, right, that when these recommendations are being made, where are they going? They're going to two really big, actually three really big groups. They're going to pediatricians and other healthcare providers who are providing the primary care for kids. Like, this is how you should approach this problem according to the data and everything that we know. That's one group. The second group is to legislatures. Should there be laws written about X issue to help protect kids? With regard to this particular set of recommendations, I would think the types of laws we would be talking about would range from school lunch laws, right? What should be served to kids to There have been a number of laws rolled out in different parts of the country around taxing high sugar content beverages, soda taxes and the like. That can stem from conversations like this. So just so you understand where the legal side is, the third constituency is parents, 
right? Parents and the people who are raising the kids who are reading the New York Times article and listening to the NPR piece and maybe tuning into this and trying to decide how do I take the advice of the American Academy of Pediatrics and apply it to my own home in order to keep the kids who live under my roof healthy and safe. Zoe, is that a good framing? I think it's a fantastic framing. And I think that, you know, as as I'm listening, I'm like, yep, that's power, right? There's a tremendous amount of power that an organization like that has. And, you know, in many ways, I think there are enormous enormous populations of people that are going to just accept it as fact, as truth, as like, you need the antibiotic if you have a ear infection and this is the treatment and I don't question it. And I think that this matter is so complex. And I think we can go right back to Vanessa, your request to talk about even the word obesity or what we understand obesity to be. I think we can go right there because one of my biggest concerns about all of it is we can't know what a value congruent decision feels like if we aren't aware that values are at the heart of a decision we're making. And values, and perhaps this is the answer to your question, Carl, like, there's this reaction because there's a crisis of values here because, and I guess, again, it's like when I say values, there's a value system that looks at the word obesity and identifies it as a disease, a chronic disease that is able to be determined based on the body mass index of a person, arguably just based on looking at a person, you might be able to determine, are they obese? Are they even overweight? And this is a a kind of acceptance that obesity is something that should be medicalized, right? Fatness should be medicalized and treated as such. And then there's a whole other value system that says, well, actually, obesity is the medicalization of fatness, and that is oppressive. And so people from, you know, working all sorts of people working at the intersection of fat liberation, public health and eating disorder prevention in particular, they reject the language of obesity due to its harmful impact, meaning that you can't destigmatize fatness or obesity if you insist that obesity is a disease that needs to be treated. And so what's very complicated about these actual guidelines, which I've read through, they have a lot to say about the importance of decreasing stigma, which on face value is actually really, really good. Like I'm glad to see in the AAP guidelines conversation about the importance of the social determinants of health. I'm really glad to see them say things like body size is up to 75%, like genetically determined. Like, I think that they are doing something to help people see that being fat, having fat, depending on how much fat you have on your body is not your fault. Like they really are trying to destigmatize that. The difference is that they're trying to destigmatize obesity as a disease, as opposed to destigmatize fatness independent of health. And that's a very different paradigm. 
That's not neglecting health, but that's saying in order to offer equitable health care to people of all body sizes, if you start using language like obesity, if you start treating patients based on size, rather than separating the size out and actually addressing the health, independent of size, those people are actually already getting substandard care versus their thinner counterparts. So there are places to go and people to listen to that are far more expert in talking about this, right? And But it looks like Kara wants to. Okay, here's what I want to jump in and say. I think that's a really, a very elegant summary of the 30,000 foot view of why this is so controversial. And it's not just that there are two sides here. There are lots of people coming from lots of different perspectives, criticizing these guidelines. And you have, I think, very beautifully described kind of all the ways in which it these guidelines are, I don't know what word I want to use, tricky, hard, complicated, layered, right? In medicine, we do this thing where we like to fall back on the very clinical definitions and the very clinical experiences in order to take some of the emotion out of it. We call it evidence-based medicine and we collect all these numbers and then we use the numbers most of the time very smartly in order to get to the core of, is this a problem or not? And if it's a problem, what do we do about it? The problem is exactly what you've described, Zoe, which is then we're two camps that are not speaking to one another. Because if all you do is come at the issue of obesity from an evidence-based medicine perspective, and you take the emotion out of it, and you take all of the social layers out of it, you can land in a place that on paper makes a lot of sense. You can land in a place where you can say, this actual number feels not as healthy as this number because the first number is associated with these 12 things and the second number is not. There's a way that that math works and that is the ultimate math of these guidelines. These guidelines, by the way, which occupy, I don't know how many pages in print, but go Google them. 100. 100. It's it's unbelievable. So it's a very... You know, it's a very dense document. It's very hard to get through. But I believe that is how the extraordinarily well-intended members of the committee who wrote these guidelines through the AAP, that is how they approached it, which was through the evidence-based medicine lens. And the problem is that we live in a world where that lens and this issue do not necessarily work together in a frictionless way. I think these guidelines came off as completely tone deaf because it's not that the math is wrong and it's not that the definition of obesity is wrong. It's just, it was, as you said, an acknowledgement of a lot of things, but it was sort of like an acknowledgement of a lot of things and then we're still going to go down this list. And that didn't resonate, even though it came from I think the right place because I have a foot in each door and I I sort of like, so that's Vanessa, go. So a couple of things for people who are neither a therapist nor a pediatrician who are less well-versed in this, like me, come sit by me. What Cara and Zoe are saying, Cara is saying that researchers and physicians know 
that there are health risks or health and car, you can rephrase this and Zoe, you can rephrase whatever I'm going to say. There are comorbidities, right? There are conditions that exist alongside someone carrying X amount of weight, quote unquote, more than they should, right? And any term we're going to use here, overweight, more than they should, unhealthy amount of weight, obesity, all of those terms and phrases carry with them a fraught cultural, emotional, therapeutic issues, right? Any of those words are imperfect and even more than that, potentially very harmful and dangerous words to use. So when I say quote unquote, I'm using quote unquote because I'm acknowledging that they're problematic terms and words. So the medical professionals are like, okay, well, if your BMI is X, then you are considered obese. And if you are considered obese, here are the 10 health problems we are concerned about for you in the short term. And here are the 20 health problems we're concerned about for you in the long term. And therefore, we're going to present these recommendations to address the numbers, as Cara was saying, right, in order to make you, quote unquote, healthier to prevent, hopefully prevent you from these health issues. However, For those of you who listened to Zoe's episode with us in the past, you will know that the psychological impacts of some of these terms are potentially even more dangerous than the physical and health risks presented by these comorbidities to obesity. So the risk to the mental health, the potential for incredibly dangerous eating disorders. And Zoe, I welcome you to rephrase anything I'm saying here, but that there are both physical and emotional risks to this terminology that is being used by the AAP and others that are potentially more dangerous than the comorbidities or the potential health conditions that they're trying to protect kids about in these guidelines. I want Zoe to weigh in on on that piece. I just will add one of the biggest criticisms on the medical side, if you will, is that the comorbidities that you've described, while clearly they track with obesity, the data is actually kind of questionable in the sense that, for instance, here's one statistic that I read in response. I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember where it came from because there are a lot of articles about this. But if you look at the number of kids who meet the definition of obesity in childhood, not all of them will go on to meet the definition of obesity in adolescence and adulthood. In fact, about 50% of them won't. And so some of the issue that's being taken on the medical side is that what we're trying to do is, just as you said, Vanessa, keep people safe and healthy and be preventive. But I don't know that we're picking the right, the perfect Zoe, I think, is agreeing with this. We're I, I, we're not picking the the perfect way into this. I don't I don't know that. I think that's where the the medical criticism is coming. Is in order to prevent type two diabetes, for instance, is this the best approach to prevent type two diabetes? And I don't know that everyone in the medical community agrees because some number of people who meet the BMI criteria of obesity will never get type 2 diabetes. And so what do you do with that? Do you say it's the best we can do right now? And so we're trying, or do you say this isn't the best way in? And I think there's some a lot of debate about that. There is. I mean, and I want to respond to so, so many things that were, were said. I'm, I want to respond to Vanessa, but Cara was saying something about when you were talking about the evidence. 
I'm going to refer everybody to Reagan Chastain for additional reading and listening, because she is the one that's really broken down where are the conflict of interests in this research? What are the actual outcomes that we're even talking about? I'm not going to try to do that. That's her wheelhouse. But I think what's really, really tricky is that any intervention that targets weight as an outcome, right? Trying to manipulate the body of even a two-year-old, which these guidelines address children as young as two, they in many ways are in conflict with what we know from also data about weight cycling and the kind of inevitability of what happens when you try to help people lose weight. They tend to gain weight and even more than they began with. So I think one of the primary concerns, even if we're just looking at that, is like, how is this not setting kids up for a, a life of weight cycling, which that has also research behind it saying that that's not good for our physical health. So there's that piece of it. And then I think that what I would, I was going to add a nuance to what you're saying, Vanessa, because yes, it's the perception. It's like the self-perception, right? If I am a child and I'm going into my doctor and the way I look is what we're talking about, because essentially to your point before, you can't talk about weight without talking about the way I look, the way my body is made. You could use the word weight, not body, but like, hello, it's the same thing. So there's the self-perception that we have to protect because we don't want kids believing that there is anything wrong with their body. We do not want that because that is a setup for such self-loathing over the course of their lives. And they are then the target for the diet industry because they believed, because they were told by authorities early on in their lives, something is wrong with my body. It's wrong. It's too big. I have to make it smaller. That's literally the message, right? So that's the self-perception. But then the reality is that sets kids up not just for psychological shittiness, but that's not good for physical health. It's sort of a cluster, the whole thing. But I want to I want to say something because what, before we started recording, you, Vanessa, very kindly said something, gave me some feedback, which I really appreciated, which was you feel like I can strike the balance between passion and nuance. And I will say that a lot of people that I really respect, because I'm pretty entrenched in the eating disorder professional world, the fat liberation, I would say adjacent world. Like I'm not, I'm not out there as a fat liberationist, but I sure do learn a lot from them. And we all can, particularly the people that are at the intersection of fat liberation and public health, people that are advocating for weight neutral care, which actually just benefits everybody. These are the people that I learned from, but I have to say that a lot of people that are in those camps are understandably enraged by this and feel like this is an enormous step backwards, that this is medical, this is oppression, this is health injustice, and they can give you very, very good breakdowns as to why this is. Again, that's not my soapbox, right? That's theirs. And it's an important one. And I think in that, what I find, and this is the role I guess I'm trying to take up is, okay, so we have to fight city hall in some ways here, but I'm a burnt out parent. I work and I got my kids in a larger body and I have to take them to the doctor and they might be giving me a recommendation that my child is obese. And like, I have to do this lifestyle intervention. And like, how do I navigate that? I want to give people resources to do their own reading, to clarify what their values are, 
Because as I said before, you cannot make a decision that is really about values if you don't even know that there's a value to be identified there. But that being said, I will push back in the following way. I also think it is important for parents and kids alike to give organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics credit for not going after them personally and for really trying to do what they feel is best to keep them safe and healthy, to not be judging them, to not be making it about how they look. Or I, I do think the organization is walking this super fine line. They didn't do it the way that we had all hoped they would. But I think there is a place to give organizations like this credit for trying to remove the value judgment and to just say, if we're looking through the lens of, quote, health, this is the best that we can offer. And the reason I want to give them credit is while they didn't do this the best way they could have, they're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. And we're all on the same side. We're fighting for the same thing. We just have to get the conversation to a place where we can hear one another and where we can, five years from now, have a whole different language around this so that young kids feel that they're being approached by their healthcare providers in a way that respects them and sees them as humans and doesn't judge them, right? So there's a ways to go here. But what I worry about, Zoe, is I worry that two sides are being pitted against each other that are actually on the same team. And it makes me sad because they're on the same team. I mean, that gets back to the conversation we had the last time we were all together, which is that ultimately people want to keep kids safe and healthy, but it sounds like there are a lot of different definitions for what safe and healthy might mean, depending on where you sit in this conversation or dare I say debate or argument. And that it's actually with more dialogue and interaction between different perspectives that the medical treatment in a doctor's office and a pediatrician's office could be more effective and safer for kids. I want to name, because we haven't actually spelled it out in this conversation, that the issue that is coming up again and again in the news is that part of the guidelines are recommending, and you guys can speak to this more specifically, medication and surgery, weight loss, medication and surgery for children, obese children. And there are nuances to that that I'd love for you to talk about, but that's what keeps coming up in right. my news feed over and over again. And this is goes right to Kara's point about how different groups of people are upset for very different reasons. Mm. Like there aren't even two camps. <laughs> there's so many more. They're like 12 right? camps. There's like 12 or 20, but yeah. to clarify, the way the guidelines are, are presented, there's sort of, it's sort of like a three steps so far. There's like this intensive lifestyle behavioral modification program that would be recommended for small children and their families. And that sounds like pretty intensive, like medical appointments where you might be meeting with different disciplines. Nowhere am I hearing anything about like eating disorder prevention folks or, you know, I, but that's sort of the idea. And then 13 weight loss surgery recommendation. Which prior to this was really 18 was the recommendation. Although I certainly saw kids whose 
parents were asking or the kids were asking about bariatric surgery, which is the most more common name that you hear for weight loss surgery, um, they were asking for referrals as young as 15 or 16. And there were surgeons who were comfortable doing those surgeries as young as 15 or 16. So this notion that it's, I think it's 13 and up in the recommendation feels like a dramatic shift from prior, but in practice, I think there have been a lot of surgeons who have had conversations with kids in their family at ages that are closer to 13 than most people realize. And can I just clarify for people why ages like 13 are so shocking? As we've discussed in the past, and as Zoe, I'm sure you've written about and Car and I are actually writing about in our book, very rarely, very, very rarely would it be recommended for a child before puberty or in puberty to be put on weight loss regimen because they are inevitably going to gain weight throughout the course of puberty and growing. If you listen to enough of our episodes, you'll hear us preach the importance of air, particularly down there. Airing out body parts reduces sweatiness, stinkiness, and skin irritation. And it feels amazing to air it all out after a long day in tight, sweaty clothes. Which is why we created the Oom Short. Super soft, lightweight, with wide legs and a low crotch. All help air flow. Designed for all genders, in all sizes, literally down to kids extra small and up to men's extra large. Everyone who wears them tells us they've never been so comfy. Get your shorts at myoomla.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, 
Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Okay. So can we, let's do the definition of terms that we should have done at the top. Yes. And just make sure we're all clear. I mean, we're all clear, I think, because we knew we were recording this episode and we did some homework and Zoe, you work in this field, but just for the the royal we of the listenership. So the definition of obesity and overweight status, according to the AAP, tethered to this document. So it's not just their definition, it's the working definition that they used in order to create these guidelines. Being overweight is defined as a body mass index at or above the 85th percentile, but below the 95th percentile for children and teenagers of the same age. So an 11-year-old who is between the 85th and 95th percentile for BMI is defined as overweight. If that child is 95th percentile or above, that is what obesity is. Okay, so let's just start with those definitions, which are complicated definitions, because now if, as you're listening to this, you go online and you look up BMI growth charts, okay, you will see that an adult BMI the number that we call the 85th percentile or the 95th percentile for BMI is quite different than the number that we use through the toddler years and the grade school years and then the teenage years because body mass index is a math equation that looks at 
weight relative to body surface area, which is a function of height. And so it shifts. I mean, toddlers should be shaped differently, right? They should be proportioned differently than, say, eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds. And so you will see these curves on these charts when you look them up. And for someone who is not used to looking at these charts, they can be hard to understand. But that 85th percentile line and the 95th percentile line are marked. You'll see them there, the swoops towards the top of the so curve. So is that the growth chart that we see in our kids' doctor's office? when it's they the third one. You see height, you see weight, and then you see BMI. It's the third one. Okay. Here's the thing. And I think this is this is great, right? Because if I'm not an eating disorder professional, and if I'm just a busy person on the run, like just living my life, I hear that. And I don't catch the nuance that you could have a kid that is plotting at the 85th percentile, their whole development even, in tip-top health. Like that happens too. And What's complicated here is that, and again, this is going back to the argument about why, you know, even having an identification such as obesity or a diagnosis of obesity is so problematic because it's medicalizing the size of a body without actually looking independently at the actual metabolic health. I just want to add that, so the complicating factor here that Zoe is describing, I think quite beautifully is BMI correlates with certain health outcomes. Correlates. Correlates. But that's different from causality. So cause means because you have a certain BMI, we know this outcome will happen. Go. I'm going to add. Add. One of the other things that is correlated with high BMI is weight stigma and living in a culture that loathes fatness so much that the oppression of that, just living in a bigger body that is only made worse when your body is essentially pathologized with or without poor health, that becomes a risk factor as well and a correlate of bad health outcomes. So very tricky. Can we go back to your first prompt, Vanessa, which was about looking at BMI in general, right? And understanding these specific recommendations that tether to BMI, because I think this is an important way to, to tie a bow around this very messy conversation. And it's going to be the ugliest bow that's ever been tied. Hell. So, okay. So here, here it is, right? So you have BMI, which is a math equation that shifts and changes, and we will link to growth charts in the show notes so people can actually see this. So the BMI shifts and changes over time. And there are many correlates, but not a whole lot of very clear direct causal links between high BMI and certain health outcomes. And that is a whole other conversation, right? But these recommendations say, okay, if your BMI is above the 95th percentile for your age, then the recommendation is that you should consider taking a medication in order to lose weight or to not gain weight rapidly in their right cuz that's a whole other thing like when you're growing what is weight loss well 
you could hold your weight the exact same. And if you continue to grow, that is essentially a relative type of weight loss. But that is not what this document is talking about. This document is talking about weight loss and weight loss medication. And so let's say that's the recommendation. Well, the question you asked, Vanessa, was, you know, what about that? And the answer is that in and of itself has lit a fire because do we have a treasure trove of data about the safety of medications that are used that way in those ages? And Zoe is furiously shaking her head no, because we don't. So what the AAP, I'm going to say it again, what the AAP did is they are doing their best to say, we have an issue in our society where we know that certain diseases I'm not calling obesity a disease. I don't call pregnancy a disease and I don't call obesity a disease, okay? Um, Personally, I don't think they're diseases. But we have an issue where we have a lot of diseases that are increasing in their prevalence in our society, type 2 diabetes being a perfect example, that are highly correlated with carrying more body weight. The AAP is trying to help solve that. But the question is, is this the right way? And I think that one of the things that I found really troubling is the lack of, why aren't they talking more about the risks of these things? I think that's what's troubling to me. I will say I'm a long time dedicated daily listener for the New York Times, like I dropped my kids off at school and it is heaven. Me, Michael Barbaro, Sabrina Tavernisi, and the coffee. <laughs> like, it's my dream moment. I, it's euphoric Monday through Friday. And I will say that when I heard that episode, and I'm forgetting the name of the journalist who he had on talking about these advancements, I wanted to scream. And I am a drafted email to Michael Barbaro, if you're listening. This journalist went on there and was just so excited about the advancements in the treatment of child and adolescent obesity, saying things like the surgeries work, not at all going into detail about what the actual risks are, not just physical, but to quality of life. And one thing that nobody talks enough about, and I feel like now I'm getting a little too excited, so I'll calm down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one of the things, and this is not the whole the whole thing, but one thing that nobody seems to talk about is the pervasive problem of body and food preoccupation that infects our society. The amount of kids, adolescents, adults that I've treated in my practice for full-blown eating disorders, subclinical eating disorders, whatever you want to call them, body image disturbances, The thing they all have in common is intense body and food preoccupation. And it is very, now I'm not saying that every single child that receives a lifestyle intervention, you know, by a competent provider will inevitably develop an eating disorder. We don't know that, but the reality is we do not know which kids will and which kids won't. And any kind of lifestyle modification that centers Eating less to weigh less is a just a complicated, this is very complicated. And it's very hard to do that without protecting developing body image 
among other things. And I think that there's nobody talking about that in these rooms. I mean, people have plenty to say about them in op-eds and social media and whatnot. But that to me is the part that is just personally very troubling. So Zoe, I want to get at, because you're so good at making sense of or clarifying for people what is so concerning and troubling. And I want to move a second away from the guidelines because I think it's clear. I think we've pointed out in a lot of different ways some of the issues and people will link to tons of things. But to me, this conversation is an opportunity to go deeper into an ongoing discussion about body positive families, kids and body image. I mean, we have a whole chapter about it in our book. And then we have a whole separate chapter about weight gain and growth because it is so complicated and there are so many layers. Can you tell us as we think about how we handle this in our homes and how we look at our growing kids with their changing bodies and their exposure to the media, which only serves to frankly make them feel really shitty about the way they look, piled on top of that, all of our own baggage and our own issues with our bodies and our food consumption, our diet and our exercise and the way we look and our wrinkles and our, you know, thinning, graying hair. I mean, the list goes on about all the shit that we're just, you know, complaining about in front of our kids on top of that. What the hell do we do? Whether they're fat or thin, whether they're tall or short, like I want people to walk away from this understanding the complexities of what goes into this incredibly fraught conversation and be like, okay, this all sucks. And Zoe gave me two things that I can implement in my house with my kids. Great. Let's let's talk about this. So first of all, having a family, being a parent, it is such a ridiculous responsibility. I mean, oh my God, like it's so hard because you're not just responsible for taking care of yourself, but like this other person or many people, many other people. And like, I think I want to normalize for everybody that like, it's okay if you don't read this hundred page document, like I'm sure you're grocery shopping, like it's fine, you know? And I do want people to be able to walk away from this conversation or this episode with something to do that even using language like overweight or obese is shaming because of the connotation of that word in our culture. So you could have the loveliest bedside manner. And so that's what I'm talking about. So so here's what I want to, I want to back up and by all means assess, build rapport, right? I, I love the idea of when my kids are tweens and teens, that they would be taking more, you know, responsibility for that. But here's the thing. And this is me saying, yes, it is that serious. Do not talk to my child about their weight problem without coming to me, because that is in direct conflict with the values in my body positive family, period. I am not saying that you can't talk to my kid about anything else that you need to as their physician, but the subject of body size as either pathologic or not is a big deal to me. And it's not in your scope to make weight loss recommendations to them without my consent. You know, it's like we're we're in the business of talking about, and I mean, I'm talking about a kid that's maybe going to be identified as one of these children or teens that needs a medication recommendation or, you know, that, that warrants a medication recommendation or even some of these intensive lifestyle behavior, whatever. 
What I'm looking for, and this goes to the second kind of recommendation that I would have as a parent, demand shared decision-making because shared decision-making involves a conversation about values as well. And that's the thing that's completely missing from this. Like, I will be fully honest, and a lot of my fat liberation, body positive friends will really eviscerate me for saying this, but in the last month, I have done a lot of research into what obesity medicine is. And I have found, even just through social media, very compassionate, competent obesity medicine specialists that I've learned from. I don't agree with the medicalization of fatness. But I will say that it's helped me see, oh my gosh, there are so many different types of people and families out there. And who am I? Okay. I'm a therapist. I'm a parent. I'm an individual. And I work more so on the individual level, right? And I am not here to judge a parent for taking their kid to an obesity medicine specialist, especially one of these compassionate ones that's also concerned about these guidelines because they're out there too. So that's where I'm trying to find not the middle ground, because I don't think you can find a middle ground on whether or not obesity is a clinical disorder. I think that that's a value is like, it's kind of where you vote, right? But I would say that demanding shared decision-making that sort of requires you to make sure that your, your team, your physicians know that like, we might have a difference of opinion here or a difference about the way we conceptualize all of this. And then I think from there, there's like a dearth of people need education. But anyway, I think that's a beautiful place to land and probably a way to reframe the recommendations from the AAP because in their title, they are recommendations. They are not mandates. They are not, you know, dictated from on high. And to your point, Zoe, this is all about conversation and communication. And if we take them for what they are, which is recommendations on how one might think about approaching an issue, well, then we can engage in conversation and we can move the ball slowly down the field with healthcare providers and parents and kids and therapists all kind of going hand in hand. And isn't that the goal, right? Isn't that the ultimate idea here to say, if there is something we can do to improve the lives of our patients slash kids, let's talk about it. Not let's absolutely unequivocally do it this way, but let's talk about it. And so much of the subtlety in this conversation has been around who's doing the talking. And is it being talked about or is it being talked with or is it being talked at? And that we all know is a place where there is so much room for improvement, right? Yeah. But this is a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, this is super complicated and we can take hope and listen to Zoe's guidance on her Instagram because I always learn something new. But please continue to follow her work. We will continue to have these conversations imperfectly, but all doing the best that we can. And Zoe, we're so grateful. We like totally snagged you to come in and talk to us very last minute because we know how important 
and fraught this issue is. And we're so grateful as ever to be in conversation with you and to sit in this very messy middle about this issue and to sit with our own very strong and passionate concerns and feelings on these topics. So thank you for for being in partnership with us. We're so grateful. Thank you both. I do love sitting here with you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Zoe. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.